Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message. Uh, Sometime between maybe first and third grade, I was in Walmart in my hometown. And I found this tiny little like accessory that came with this toy that was very evident from, uh, from just where it was that somebody had stolen this toy and left this one little piece behind. And I found it and I remember it was a Star Wars toy and you pulled it and it changed, like it had like slats and it would change the picture. And I remember sitting there and I remember knowing that I shouldn't, I shouldn't take it home. But I thought, you know what? Somebody's already taken the other part home. I knew, I knew it wasn't like a primary. And I thought, you know what? Somebody's already taken the other part home. Easy. And I remember slipping it in my pocket. And every time I had it and I messed with it, I knew like, listen, my mom is a very smart woman. And like, I knew that if she saw it, she'd go, he got it from somewhere. So I only, play, I only played with it in my room. I only messed with it there. And as I did, I was like, man, that was relatively easy. So I went to Walmart one day and I hatched a plan. I'm gonna steal an action figure. So I had it all planned out. I looked around for all the cameras as much as someone who was, you know, between first, second, third grade it can. Um, I got it open because I knew that the packages would, you know, would trip sensors. Again, listen, you're looking at a mastermind up here at a young age. So I got it, and I won't, t- I won't tell you how I got it out because I don't want any copycats, but, um, but I got it out and I got it home. And again, my mom's a smart woman. I knew if she saw it, she would know that she did not get this for me. She didn't know where. So I was like, okay, I gotta hide it. So I put the action figure in the very bottom of the toy box and I had the weapons that I stole. Listen, I went full, all of it. I got the whole bank, right? Like, so I went in there and I was like, I'm gonna put them in my bed railing. And again, all this started from picking up that one thing. I justified that and I led to this. And my door opened and there was my mom. Y'all, like, even now I get nervous. Like, listen, like, again, my, my mother is four foot, ten and a half inches tall and has an arm like a major league uh, baseball player. I'm telling, like, fail. And she goes, what is that? You know, and I immediately, like, again, all of these things, all of the wrong things I've done flooded in and my stomach dropped and I began weeping and I explained it to her. And again, she is judge, jury, executioner, and she exercised justice swiftly. And painfully, and again, tears still going. And she said, tomorrow, your dad is going to take you back to that Walmart and you're going to tell them what you did. With me again, you know, like, again, that was way worse. And I remember, I don't even know if my sisters know this story. Like, they kept it between them, but I remember going back there and I remember walking in and going, I mean, am I going to prison? I don't really know what the, like again, like, I mean, I just had to, I I was so, again, I'm even nervous talking about it. I was so nervous and we go and my dad's like, we want to speak to the manager. He's like the top guy and I've got to tell him what I did. So again, through tears, once again, I told him and my dad said, listen, you know, we'll pay for it, obviously. Now it's very important to note if my parents would have paid for it, my dad would have thrown it in the garbage on the way out. It wasn't like a, well, here you go. No, that was not the circumstances. And the manager went, listen, I'm grateful you brought him back in. It's fine. You know, it's fun. I think he's gone through enough, you know. Um, But I remember, again, thinking back on it, I remember how that one first thing that I did led to the next. And it led to that next. 
and I began justifying things. And uh, again, my, my mother, when I would get caught, do, I was a mischievous kid. When I would get caught doing things, my mother would ask me the worst question again. You're saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she'd say, are you sorry you did it or are you sorry you got caught? No, that's the worst question because it makes me question my motivations, right? Like I have to truly say, well, was I apologizing? Would I, would I, you know, would I have still done it? Well, I didn't come forward to admit to it. So would I have still done it? Would I have done it again? Better yet, better yet, like if I am really sorry, why did I do it in the first place? And here's the thing, when we're, but there's something to being caught in the act of doing something wrong. There's something that, that, that's there that, again, we feel that, oh, no. And it's like a snapback to reality. And if, if in those moments, if we, don't, if we don't allow ourselves to be defensive, we can, we can learn in those moments. We can learn, why did I justify my actions in this? I knew it was, again, I knew it was wrong from the first little thing laying on the floor. I knew it was wrong. I knew I shouldn't take it. I 100% knew. But somebody else had taken the main part. It won't be a big deal. But that led to me doing the next thing. Better yet, it leads us to ask, why was I okay justifying those actions? Why did I feel okay? Why did I feel like this was something that was acceptable? You see, when it comes to sin, especially when we're living in sin and we have a sin that, that, that we continue to indulge, very rarely is it just something we decide to do one day. We, we, we say yes to a whole lot of little things that get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that we get to a place where we can't say no. Like you've heard that, you've heard people say that in situations, they said, I just couldn't, I couldn't say no. We say, well, obviously you can say no. Well, when we've said yes so many times when we should have said no, it gets harder and harder to say no till we get to the point to where we, we can't say no. It leads us to those choices. Today we're going to be in Psalm 51. Um, this is a heart-wrenching psalm because we can see ourselves in it so much. It's a psalm written by David. And David committed maybe one of the most well-known sins in all of Scripture. But we've got to understand where, where David came from. So, again, Israel wants a king. Israel wants a king really bad. Samuel goes, and Samuel finds Saul. Uh, the Lord says, you'll know him because he's a head taller than everybody else. He's very handsome, very impressive. So he gets Saul, and Saul for a while does okay and does well, but Saul then becomes impatient, and he wants to do, he, he kind of wants to do what God wants to do, but he wants to do it his way. So he knows, okay, we need to make a sacrifice, but uh, okay, well, well, Samuel's in here, so I'll make the sacrifice. Well, it wasn't his job. You know, hey, when you go to the Amalekites, wipe the Amalekites out, out of, completely out, gone. So I was like, well, listen, I'm going to keep a king. I'm going to keep all the best stuff, and we're going to sacrifice it to God. You're welcome, Lord. Well, this is not what God had called him to do. This is what not God had told him to do. Or this is not what God had told him to do. So... Um, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. There's a whole lot of tension between Benjamin and the rest of the tribes. Look that up. It is a very, it's not a story you're going to hear necessarily in very, very low ages of Sunday school. But he's from the tribe of Benjamin. David's from the tribe of Judah. God tells Samuel, I've removed my blessing from Saul. Go to Jesse and one of his sons, I'll tell you which one to anoint. 
So Jesse brings his son in one at a time, saying, okay, he looks pretty good. And God says, you're looking at the outside. Stop looking at the outside. I look at the heart. So he goes through all the sons, and he's like, so is this all of them? And Jesse's like, well, no, we've got the, we got the little one who's out there guarding the sheep. Well, bring him in. It says David, David's ruddy, and he's, he's the smaller one. He's kind of the, you know, the runt, and that's who God picks. Now, we often think of David like in the pictures of, you know, he's got his little shepherd's crook and he's this, you know, like, listen, David had killed lions. David was a defender. David was, um, he's a pretty hardcore dude, even at this point, you know, at 12, 15-ish years old, whatever that is. Like, he's a pretty hardcore dude. But because the spirit of God had been removed from Saul, it says that Saul was being tormented by a different spirit, by a different spirit of God that that was bearing on his soul. And his advisor said, let's bring in somebody to play some music. Maybe that'll help. Well, do you know anybody? Yeah, we know this little shepherd boy named David. Yeah, he's really, really good. Let's bring him in. So he becomes, and it soothes Saul to do this. So this is the same David who, um, as a kid, is sent to uh, take provisions to his brothers, and he sees this big giant who's defaming the name of God and who's trash-talking all these people, right? And David, again... Listen, I work with teens, and I love working with teens. Some teens are just a little bit more confident than maybe they should be in their abilities, right? And again, we all can do that sometimes, but sometimes teenagers that like that way. But again, David's like, why don't y'all just go take care of him? Well, he's big. Okay. He doesn't have God on his side. You're going to let, you know what? I'll take care of him. So Saul comes up, and he's like, okay, well, you know what? You can wear my armor, and he puts it on. It doesn't fit well. And again, Saul's wanting to do things his way. David goes, no. He gets five stones, he goes down there and he squares up with a giant, right in the forehead, giant falls down. Again, we often end there, but again, David is a warrior. David cuts his head off, says, listen, he's not gonna do that. He's not gonna talk about God that way. I have God on my side. How could he, who who does this guy think he is that, that he can defeat me who God is on my side? Or better yet, defeat God, I'm just the instrument. So, Saul gives his daughter to David uh, and uh, so he can marry. He becomes uh, Saul's armor bearer and David begins to win these military battles and do these incredible things and David's impressive. He's making a name for himself and people start saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, if you're the king, you get a little bit jealous. Okay, well, this, well, this clearly isn't going to work. So Saul decides, you know what? I'm going to get rid of David. But his son comes and helps David escape. David and, his son, or David and Saul's son, Jonathan, very good friends, helps him escape. He lives in the wilderness. He takes shelter uh, wherever he can. People who would help him, Saul would kill. Like, again, this, he's running from Saul. He's running from his life. And once again, God has said, this is the man. This is the king of Israel. Yet the guy who is still sitting on the throne is chasing him. David passes on two separate opportunities to kill Saul. He could have ended his problems, but he passed on two separate opportunities. Saul and Jonathan, uh, they both die. And um, David's own tribe, Judah, recognizes him as king. The rest of them don't. They actually recognize Saul's son as king. So for seven and a half years, David was the king of the tribe of Judah. He's the king of all of Israel, but everybody else recognized the other son, the son of Saul. That son is killed, and then David becomes the king of Israel. He assumes the throne of everyone. And listen, 
Things go really well for Israel after this. The Ark of the Covenant is returned to Jerusalem. Uh, We know the story of David dancing. Uh, He had told Jonathan that he would treat his family kindly. Now, if you're a king and another king comes in, this other king, your best bet is to wipe out everyone who knew or was loyal to this other king. But he asked this servant who was a servant of Saul, he said, is there anyone left in their family? And he says, yes, Jonathan's son, but Jonathan's son, he, he can't walk. And David says, bring him in, sit him at my table. Also, all you servants of Saul, you're now his servants. And he treats him well. This is unprecedented grace in this time. David wins battle after battle after battle. And he dedicates the spoils to the Lord. He gives all of it back to the Lord. And again, it's to the point to where people are seeing this happening. And people are coming to David and saying, hey, you can rule us. Okay, cool. And David takes over. David is doing incredibly. This is the golden age of Israel. Everything is great because God has blessed David and David's leadership. And God tells David, I will give you a life of peace and rest if you continue to be faithful. This is about 10 years after David was reigning. Um, And it's important to note that whenever life is going well, whenever things are going really great, that's often when we're most vulnerable. That's often when we let our guard down a little bit. We feel untouchable. We feel like whatever we do is going to be great. And we begin thinking that maybe I am the reason this happens. In 1 Samuel 11, or uh, 2 Samuel 11, we see where David is not where he's supposed to be. In the Middle East, even to this day, there's a fighting season that begins in spring. And kings at this point would go out with their armies. But David didn't this time. So he's not where he's supposed to be. So he's on the roof of his house and he looks over and he sees Bathsheba and she's taking a bath. And he inquires about her. Who is this? They say, oh, it's Uriah, the soldier. He's, he's gone. It's Uriah's wife. Well, David sends for her. David brings her there and David sleeps with her. Now, As a kid, I grew up thinking that this was probably mutual, but you've got a man who, again, who is God's man, man after God's own heart. Israel's doing well because of his leadership. He brings her in and does what he wants and then sends her on her way. Well, she becomes pregnant, and David immediately goes, okay, I need to get out of this. What do I do? So... David's, uh, David's faithful commander of his armies is Joab. He sends a messenger and says, send Uriah to me. So Uriah comes and he says, listen, you know what? Let's have a meal and then go down to your home. Go down to your home. Just stay the night. It's fine. Just go down to your home. They've been gone for a while. Go down to your home. So Uriah goes out and he sleeps in front of the king's gate. And they tell David this. And David's like, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, the Ark of the Covenant and Israel sleep in tents, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. So Uriah stands firm with his soldiers. Uriah's an honorable man. He stands firm with his soldiers. And again, David's expecting him to go home, spend the night with his wife, do what married couples do, and then, oh, we're clear, we're good. So David says, okay, you know what? Tonight, eat with me, then you can go back tomorrow. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to get him drunk. Lower the inhibitions a little bit. See what happens. David... Uriah goes out and sleeps where David's servants sleep. So David says, okay, that didn't work. I'm on a time crunch here. What can I do? 
So he writes a letter to Joab. Now, Joab has been with David for a while. Joab is the commander of his armies. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Uriah and put him where the most intense fighting is. Where, you know, it's just the, the hardest fighting. Put him there. And I want you to advance and then retreat. And I want Uriah to be killed. Then he gives the letter to Uriah, seals it, and says, take this to the commander. What an honor for Uriah that David would trust him with such a letter. So he goes, Joab, who is faithful to David, says, okay, they do that. Not only Uriah dies, but it says several, of servant, several servants of David also die because of this. They send messengers back. Hey, Uriah is dead, says Bathsheba mourned at the loss of her husband. Once she got past that period, David brought her into the palace and made her his wife. It's pretty horrendous. I think we can all agree that that is, not, that is not an honorable thing to do. And here's the thing. Maybe, maybe if we think about human nature, we can see how David could have possibly justified this in his mind. Again, I knew it was wrong to steal an action figure, right? But I could justify it. So maybe David said, man, you know what? Israel's doing well, and I care about the reputation of the Lord. I don't, I don't want the reputation to be bad, but also, like, like, I've got my reputation, and I'm God's man. I'm a man after God's own heart. That's what I've been told. And I, don't, I need to maintain my reputation. So I'll bring Bathsheba in. We'll keep her in the palace. She has the baby. The timeline's muddled. Fine. Easy. A few years pass. And we see where the new prophet Samuel has passed long ago and the new prophet Nathan confronts David. And he tells him this story about two men, one rich, one poor. This rich man had many flocks, many, many flocks of animals. And the poor man had one sad little lamb, but the man loved the lamb. He says that he loved it as his own child. The lamb stayed in their home. The lamb uh, ate from his, from his plate. Like again, he, was, he loved this little lamb. And a traveler came to visit the rich man. And the rich man, uh, rather than taking one of his many flocks, he took the little lamb from the poor man and slaughtered it to feed them. Well, listen, David's not going to stand for that. In that moment, David stands up and says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And it may be one of the most powerful statements in the Old Testament, Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. Imagine you're David. Again, it's been several years. Maybe you kind of pushed it to the back of your mind. We don't really know, but... And Nathan tells him the whole story. Nathan says, that peace that God had promised you, you are unfaithful. You will be at war. Your family will be at war. And this child that you had with Bathsheba will surely die because of your sin, because of what you did. David's only recorded response to, response to all of that from Nathan is he says, I have sinned against the Lord. No justification, no excuses. Now, Bathsheba would later have another son, Solomon, who we know became king right after David. And again, the Lord or Jesus would be born through this line. But even still, we see this moment where, again, David is confronted with his sin. 
In Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12, uh, this is David's response. David has not gone far from his, uh, from his musical upbringing. Um, he expresses himself through this poetry, and he expresses himself through this. And uh, again, read the whole psalm, but we're going to focus on those three verses there, starting in verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now it's important to note, David offers no excuses in this psalm. Well, Lord, I was tired. Well, Lord, it just, it just kind of happened. We don't see the typical response whenever you know public figures or someone mess up well it was a lapse in judgment i made a mistake david doesn't say that in fact in verse 2 of this chapter he asks he says to god wash me thoroughly and and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin that word sin is kata'a which is translated into sin in some places but other places it's translated into evil Listen, we can, be, we, can sin, we can make a mistake, right? But you don't commit evil accidentally. You don't do something evil accidentally. That is a conscious choice. And by the way, this isn't something that can be undone. This isn't something that David can go back and just go, just kidding. This is something that has been done. In verse 10, He asked him to create a new heart and to renew a right spirit. David is asking for nothing less than a miracle here. In fact, the same word that is used when he says create is the same word used in Genesis when it talks about God creating the heavens heavens and the earth. It's creating something out of nothing. David understands that nothing he has to offer can go into this. Lord, create in me a new heart. You're the one who can do it. You see, repentance, we, we... it's tempting to say, well, I'm repentant. I'm repentant. Okay, well, that's easy to say, but repentance requires a change. And that change can only be done by God, creator. You see, the capability to sin is always within us. Is always within us. And we all have this tendency and we all have this, uh, this proclivity to sin, to lean into the flesh, to allow the flesh to take over and to do what we feel in the moment. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is a desperate plea for renewal and for restoration. He wants God to change him. Change me back to where I once was, Lord. He wants to feel what he once felt. He wants to give up the spirit of rebellion, renewing me the spirit. Again, this is the same, this is a prayer of renewal for the spiritual confidence that allowed him to kill a giant. David didn't walk in going, well, maybe the Lord will do this. No, David walked in saying, no, the Lord will prevail today. I don't care how big he is. He's asking for renewal in that spirit. Later on in Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, uh, verse 25 to 27, again, if, if you look up this verse, circle where, this is God talking, circle where it says I or my. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. 
and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. God doesn't say do better, be better. God says, I will renew you. I will change you. I will remove that heart of stone and put a heart of flesh within you. David understands that the only thing that he can bring to this situation is his willingness to allow God to change him. David understands what, what, he is, what he's experiencing. And David can't bring holiness to the table, right? Well, God, I will, I will be holy. Because whatever is of God is good and whatever is of us is evil. God establishes what is good and what is holy. And any holiness that we exhibit is from God working through us. David understands that it's, it's hopeless apart from God. Again, earlier in the psalm, in Psalm 51, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in my iniquity, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This isn't an excuse. He's not saying, well, God, what, what did you expect me to do? No, it's an acknowledgement of God. I have nothing to offer. You're the one who grants this. All I can do is say yes. All I can do is desire you. You're the one who does all of it. You're the one who, who justifies. You're the one who brings salvation. You see, to truly repent from something means that I have to realize that I have nothing to offer in my own salvation other than saying yes. I have to acknowledge my sin and the depth of that sin. And David's sin shows us that our, our flesh is always trying to separate us from God, always working against us, always tearing at us, always pulling us away. I don't care if you've been a Christian for a month or you've been a Christian for most of your life. Your flesh is always trying to pull you away from God at every chance it gets. In verse 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, when we begin to grasp that depth of our sin, when we begin to grasp how much we need Lord it, or need the Lord, it pushes us to God because we see that I cannot do it on my own. Not only that, I, I, I can't even gain any ground. It is the Lord who saves me. And David's thinking back to, to Saul and his kingship. Again, David it says that the spirit of the Lord was renewed from Saul. Because Saul, and even in, even in Saul, the, some, the things that Saul did were wrong. I want to make that very clear. I don't want to justify the things that Saul did. But Saul sometimes would be impatient and try to hurry up. He wouldn't be patient with the Lord. There's nothing that David did in this situation where you go, yeah, but he was trying to be good. And he's saying, Lord, don't depart from me. And David is realizing more and more the depth of that sinful nature within him. He's experiencing his brokenness in the rawest sense. In fact, once again, in 3 and 4 in this psalm earlier, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you, you may say, well, I feel like he sinned against Uriah, okay? Maybe. What David is saying is, listen, any sin that I have in my life, whether it be against someone, if it's against someone, if it is sinful, it is a sin against God. 
If we are not, um, if we are not doing what God's best is in our relationships, that is a sin against God. We may say, my relationship with the Lord is good. My relationship is, is good with the Lord, but this person I want nothing to do with. Well, no, a sin against my neighbor is a sin against God. And sin is the most slippery of slopes. What starts out is, you know, what we would say, well, maybe it's a guilty pleasure, or maybe it's, you know what, it's just a little, you know, we talk about little white lies. It's just this little thing. It's not a big deal. It doesn't affect anyone. I even hide it well enough to where it won't affect my testimony. It's easy. It's fine. Well, sin is a slippery slope. We justify this one thing. We justify the next thing that's a little bit bigger, that's a little more heinous. We don't get to do things apart from God. Well, I can part my relationship with the Lord here, but over here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this little side thing over here. No, anything that we do apart from God is not of God, and therefore it is sinful. Every aspect, every aspect of our life has to be lived and defined by our relationship with the Lord. And listen, however bad I think my sin is, even when, I, even when I'm, I'm broken, however bad I think my sin is, it is far worse. You see, repentance is understanding that I am capable of anything. And I mean that in the most negative sense. Uh, I hear complaints, and uh, nobody from in here, obviously, about younger generations, about my generations and younger, and say, well, you know, they're just, they're told, oh, they can do whatever they want. They can be whatever you want, and, you know, they need a, a reality check. Well, yeah, that, that's true, but I also think, how often do we talk to our kids about, hey, listen, the world is trying to pull you away. The world is trying to wreck you. We say, you know what, you, this has been your dream for so long. This is what you want to do for so long. And you know what, if you work really hard, you can do it. When is the last time we've said, God has placed this desire within you? God has put you on here for a purpose. What is that purpose? We remove, we remove this idea of, you know what, not my kid. Again, not my kid. I try to be, very, again, I'm, I'm objective. I've, everyone's objective about their own kids 100%. I've seen my son's depravity, right? And as clearly as it possibly can get, right? I try to be objective on that, but we also, I also try to make sure that we, we teach him and that we use those moments as teachable moments to speak into him. And whenever we realize, man, I'm capable, like anyone that I judge for doing something, that same sin nature in them that caused them to do that is alive in me and dwells in me. You know what that causes us to do? It causes us to have a lot more patience with our neighbor. It causes us to, it, it calls us to give grace because I know that I'm capable of sinning the same way they are. Not only that, it makes me keep my guard up against temptation. Even when things are going as well as they possibly can, I know what my tendencies are. The more I understand my need for God's grace, the more I fall in love with him and I fall in love with his commandments. And this leads to this, this last verse, verse 12, which again is, this is, this is David, this is David's acknowledgement that nothing he does can, like he needs God fully at every single step of the way. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me 
with a willing spirit. Not restoring to me my salvation, but the joy of my salvation. The same joy that made him dance when the ark came back into Jerusalem. The same joy that when he was running for four years allowed him to be patient and to do what God had called him to do. This is David acknowledging that when we have sin in our lives, it takes away our joy from the one who has saved us. Think of it like a spiritual elephant in the room, right? Like we're in this room and again, we're in there trying to commune with God and there's just this big thing in the corner. This big thing in the corner that, you know, you can't, you can't really acknowledge it. Like you're, you're, trying to, you know, you're trying to pray around it. Trying to, you're, looking under, you're doing anything you can to try to act like it is not there and that is not happening. But we can't ignore the spiritual elephant in the room. I can't focus on the Lord with this huge thing hanging around. And by the way, if we have lost the joy that we once felt in our relationship with the Lord, that is not the Lord. That is me. That is my issue. That is something I have to look up. If, if I refuse to give up a sin, I'm saying that that sin provides for me something that God can't. It's an acknowledgement of my belief that my creator, the creator of everything we know, the one who sent his son to die on a cross so that we could be reconciled with him. Again, all powerful, all knowing, all present. It is me saying to that creator, you're incapable of giving me everything I need. Well, it's just a little sin. No, it is not. What's this little thing nobody knows about? Doesn't matter who knows about it. Doesn't matter if you've kept it secret. Doesn't matter what that is. Doesn't matter if you think it doesn't affect you. It does. Because repentance is a changing. Repentance is a rejection of the things of the world. And it's a understanding and a declaration of our powerlessness against our own sinful nature. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Again, David doesn't say, Lord, I'll be more joyful. Lord, I'll, I'll renew this. No, David knows. Once again, David is sinful. There is nothing good in him. He's saying, Lord, restore me. I am desperate. Bring me back to where I once was, Lord. You, only you can do this. God gives us the spirit to wage war against our flesh, but we have to see sin as sin. We can't justify it. We don't try to let it slide. We don't try to let it ignore it. We don't try to say, well, you know what? I'll do better next time because we won't. And if we're trying to repent to make, if I'm trying to gain repentance to make me feel better, I'm missing it. There has to be grief. There has to be an acknowledgement of my sin. 1 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief leads to sin. If all I'm trying to do is avoid the consequences of my actions, then I'm not pursuing the Lord. If all I want to do is, if all I want to do is, you know, not have to, not have to take the, the toy back to Walmart and talk to the manager, if that's the only reason I'm doing all that, if that's the only reason I'm saying that, then I don't really feel bad for what I've done. Repentance isn't a removal of our guilt. It's a removal of anything that is between us and our creator. It can be painful. 
It's a process. It takes a while. It may be me saying no to something I've wanted all of my life. It may mean me saying, you know what? This thing that draws me in, this thing that I've loved all my life, I've got to give that up. It may mean selling the things that we put our time and our efforts and all of our concentration and all of our resources into because I see that this is, this is the spiritual elephant in the room. This is the thing coming between me and God. And you may say, that seems crazy. Well, is it worth it? Is it worth my relationship with God to say no to everything of the world? Because if it's not, then we're not repentant. Because repentance is allowing God to remove all of the obstacles that are between me and him. This doesn't mean a removal of consequences either. Again, David's family continued to battle back and forth. That child, that child who he had conceived with Bathsheba, that child died. David's son Solomon would take over the kingdom and then the kingdom would be split. There were consequences to David's actions. But when we're truly repentant over something, when we truly say, God, I don't desire this anymore. I see my sin. I I know my sin. I know what I'm capable of. And I know that I'm just as likely to go back to it apart from you. In fact, I'm more likely to go, God, take this away. We no longer allow the things of the world and of our flesh to determine value. So that thing that we've held on to for years, it doesn't mean anything. The thing I've always wanted to do, well, if that's not what God's best is, I don't want to do it anymore. It changes the way we think, the way we speak, the way we interact with other people. And if you, and if you have a thought, and, and, I, and I've heard people say this, well, you know what, I'm going to do what I want, and I'll just ask forgiveness later. That is not repentance. That's a formality. You can't loophole salvation. That's trying to follow God with your old sinful heart. That is trying to follow, that is trying to follow God your way. That is trying to say, well, you know what, Lord, I'll do it your way, but whenever I've had all my fun, whenever I've done what I've wanted to, whenever I've you know, done everything I possibly can do, and when I'm out of everything, then I'll say yes. There are consequences to sin. And even, and this is this is where this gets a little bit um. It's going to feel really negative, but it's not. When we are truly repentant, there are still consequences to that sin. That doesn't mean the consequences disappear. If you've, if you've had an addiction all of your life and you've come to know the Lord and you, you, you know, you've given that addiction up, there will still be times when you're tempted to go back. I heard a man once say that it had been 30 years since he'd had a drink. He, he was an alcoholic in his early 20s, had done all he wanted to do. And he said, it's been 30 years. I've gone longer without having a drink than I was alive. Most of my life I haven't. But every time I walk into that gas station and I see it, I can taste it. I remember how I felt. I remember what it did to me. I remember what, how it numbed my problems and it numbed the things within me and it numbed all the stuff that I didn't want to experience or I didn't want to confront. I remember it. And it's been 30 years years. There are consequences to our actions. So if we think that it is necessary to say, well, you know what? I'll ask forgiveness at the end of my life. Well, that's not the case.
The power of repentance leads us to try to reconcile the wrongs in our lives with our neighbors. I don't really care if I'm right. I don't really care if I get what's mine or I don't really care if they get what's coming to them. It's not about if I'm right or I get what I deserve. It's about doing what God's best is in that situation. It's about pursuing him. It's about loving the Lord and it's about saying, you know what, God, what happens in this world does not matter. I'm living for something greater than this world has to offer. So we humble ourselves. I don't have to be right. I don't have to, I don't have to get what I feel like I deserve. But we do have to deal with the consequences of our sin in this world. We do have to experience those things. But here's the thing. God gives us a peace which surpasses all understanding. So even when we're dealing with those things, things that maybe we said, I can't ever go back, I can't experience, I can't, I can't do that. God gives us peace. God gives us peace. You know, I've, I've done these things in my past. And listen, I, don't, I, don't, I, know, I know most of you here. I don't know everything you've done. I don't know most of your deep, dark secrets. I don't know any of that. I don't know your struggles. I don't know those sorts of things. But listen, whenever we repent and, we re- and God restores the joy of his salvation, we fall back in love with reading his word. We fall back in love with doing what God's called us to do. We fall back in love with spending time in prayer and spending time with fellow believers, not just hanging out and having meaningless conversations, but encouraging one another, telling each other what God is teaching us, talking about how good God is to us. When we sit here and we sing songs in the morning, we don't just sit there and go, that's a good song. We hear the words. We hear what God is speaking through us to those. When we hear God's word uh, teached or taught, or preached, we, we take that in and we experience it and we apply it to our lives and say, okay, God, what do I do next? We do what in the world seems illogical. But to God, it's perfectly logical. We apologize. We don't make excuses. We don't justify what we've done. We don't say, well, you know what? You know what? You just don't know where I've come from. You don't know what I've experienced. It's true. But I know that God's pretty clear about what sin is. And I know that with repentance, it requires us to approach that sin. It requires us to think about what that sin does to us and how that sin resides within us. So as Chris comes forward, I want to ask you, maybe there's something in your life that, that you're, you've not repented of. Maybe, and maybe, maybe it's something actively that you know is wrong, but you're continuing to do it. Maybe it's something that you've said, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe it's something you've done long ago, but you just feel like, you know what, man, Lord, I just don't feel as close to you as I once did. Maybe you've blocked it out and pushed it aside. Maybe it's a relationship you have right now where, again, they've wronged you and you refuse to budge on that. You refuse to forgive. You refuse to to give it up. Well, that's a call to repentance. Because if God is who he says he is, and I I, I 100% believe that, if God is who he says he is, then the things of this world shouldn't dictate how we treat others. The things of this world shouldn't hold us so far away from God, and we shouldn't have these big spiritual elephants in the room and 
Maybe you say, man, I've, I've been a Christian for years and as I read God's word, I just, I don't get what I used to get out of it. It's just become what's, what's, what I do. I want you to bow your heads and I want you to just take a minute and pray. Take a moment just to listen to the Lord. Don't, your temptation in this moment will be to justify how you feel about a situation or to justify your actions or to say, this is okay. Don't do that. Resist that temptation. Push back against it. Think about a holy, perfect God. And think about a a sinfulness, a sinful nature that resides in every one of us. But think about the love and the grace that that holy, perfect God extends to us, that he would send his son to die so that we could be reunited with him. About a holy, perfect God who sent his word to us so that we could learn. But even, even further than that, after his son lived the life, died, rose again, and went back, who sends us a helper, a Holy Spirit that lives within us to guide us and to minister to us and to teach us all of these things. Because I'm telling you, if you're, if you're not a Christ follower today, And you're saying, well, Blake, I've got to get a lot of things in order before I say yes. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because even even if you get all of those things in order, even if you begin to say the right words and to think the right things and do all of that, you're still sinful. It is God who grants repentance, not us. If you want to come forward and you want to pray about something, we we would love, we have people here who would love to pray with you who would love to just talk you through it, who would just love to talk to you about how good God is. Because here's the thing, our Christian lives, we don't have to live them alone. We're not meant to live them alone. This is what the church is. The church is for us to come alongside each other and to lift each other up. Yes, the church, yes, as as Christ followers, we should confront sin and we should um, talk to people who are living in sin. But at the same time, when people are truly repentant of that, we come alongside those people and walk with them. So as we sing, I just want to encourage you to pray. Ask God, what's the spiritual elephant in the room? What's the thing between you and him? What's keeping you away from him? Church, we're grateful for you. We are grateful for, um, I'm grateful for your encouragement. I'm grateful for, um, for all of you. I'm so glad God led me here. Um, And God led me to be part of this community with you. Um, We are praying for you. Pray for each other. Um, And if if you want to to talk more about this, I I would love to talk to you. Um, I'll be up here at the front. Um, But my prayer for you this week is that you find peace in the Lord. You find that he is better. He is better than anything that you're holding on to, anything you're experiencing, anything that you may feel like is worth it, anything you're trying to justify. God is better than all of that. Uh, We love you, church. I hope you have a wonderful week. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.